If you have your Bibles, open them with me to 1 Samuel 14. We're going to continue our study uh, of a king, uh, the first king of Israel. His name's Saul. Uh, his best days are already behind him. He's only two years into his 40-year reign. Uh, if you've been following along with us, you know we've just kind of been studying what God has done in this period of Israel's history uh, to show his people who he is and to lead them to trust in him. Uh, today we're going to watch Saul's son, a guy named Jonathan, uh, play the hero in the emancipation of Israel one more time from their uh, foe, the Philistines. Uh, but before we get to that, let's talk about heroes. Anybody ever needed a hero? I was, uh, just me? Okay, good, three of us. All right, so uh, yeah, everybody needs a hero every once in a while. You know what, I, as I was uh, preparing this message this week, I'm old, so uh, Footloose, did anybody see the original Footloose? Bonnie Tyler sang a song. I need a hero. Anybody know that one? She sang it higher. Uh, but uh, all of us can sing that song from time to time. We all get to play a hero uh, of sorts in people's lives. Last night, uh, I got to play the hero for my father-in-law, Byron. He's 90 years old. He's come to live with us over the past year. And he is a treasure trove of sermon illustrations. Thank you, Dad, uh, for blessing me week over week with stories. Uh, he was taking a shower last night as he was getting ready uh, to head to bed and get up for church. He's at his church right now. Uh, and, uh, and so he was doing his normal Saturday night routine. Uh, when the lights in his end of the house went out, here's why. Uh, we have the air conditioning on. It's like 85 degrees now. It was nice in your world yesterday. And so the air conditioning's on our house, and, and he does not like the air conditioning, so he has not one but two space heaters in his room. And that trips, uh, you know, uh, fuses. So, uh, or whatever they're called now. Uh, breakers, there we go. And so uh, Eleanor comes running down the hall. I've gotten home from Saturday night service. I'm sitting in my chair just chilling out. And she says, Mark, uh, you know, uh, not in a panic, but she's, you know, Mark, dad's lights are out. And so I got to get up, go to our panel and, you know, switch his breaker back on. And he's yelling from his end of the house, it's good. And I'm like, I'm the hero in this story. Once, yeah. uh, that's, that's kind of a small sample of heroism. Uh, what we have in our story today in Jonathan's life is um, historic and it's heroic nature. It, it turns the tide of the story of an entire nation. Uh, if you've been with us, uh, last week we talked about how Saul got ahead of God, uh, gave a sacrifice that the prophet and priest Samuel was meant to give. Um, God, in that moment, said, Saul, we're done with you. You're the only one of your line, only one of your family that will ever sit on the throne. We're going in a different direction. His name will be David, and we'll find out about him later in our study. But uh, uh, you're done. He didn't depose him right there, but he, he said, this is it. And, and he removed uh, his favor from him. So much so that last week, that, that's when everything went wrong in Israel again. The Philistines came in with this overwhelming force, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, infantry that were like uh, the, the sands of the, of the shores. He didn't even bother counting. And, and they occupy uh, the promised land, the land that God had given to the descendants of Abraham. And they're setting up shop. They're economically oppressing the people of Israel. Uh, Saul's army, which last chapter had been 3,000 men, was now down to 600 because most of them had either left the country or had dug in, uh, as were, uh, gone into caves and cisterns and other holes in the ground. They were so afraid of the Philistines that they just left their post 
in the army of Israel. It's into this scene that this story uh, unfolds. Let's read it together. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, uh, said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. So apparently, Jonathan's hanging out with the the remaining 600 men. He and his dad are there. Uh, But he's like, I've had enough. This has gone too far too long. Let's go see what God will do. And so he uh, says to his young man who carries his armor, his, in golf, he would be the caddy. I named him last service Carl. Carl the caddy. And he says to Carl, let's go. We're going to go check out what's happening at this particular Philistine garrison. But he did not tell his father. No backup. No walkie-talkies to, you know, phone in the airstrikes, which weren't a thing back then. Uh, It was just him and Carl. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah, Uh, That's his hometown in the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, In the pomegranate cave at Migron, that's all you need to know. Uh, It's not just the the, the soldiers of the Israeli army, it's the general, the king of the Israeli army. He's hiding out in a cave too and governing from this hole. (laughs) Uh, It tells us there that the people who were with him were about 600 men. And then in verse 3, it gives these, you ever come to a verse in the Bible and it's a whole bunch of names and you're like, skip that. Don't skip that. Okay, don't skip the names. I know they're hard to pronounce. I'm going to butcher these ones, okay? But there is some meat on the bone with this verse. Let's find out. Here we go. Uh, he says he was with a bunch of people, 600 men, including amongst those men, Ahijah, the son of Ahutub, or Hitub, whatever. And uh, the, Ahitub, his uh, father, was the brother of Ichabod, the son of a guy named Phineas, who was the son of a guy named Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh. Okay, so if you've been around for our story, you go back like, you know, 10 chapters, you're going to see these guys, Eli, Phineas, and Hophni. Eli's the dad. Phineas and Hophni are the sons. Wicked, horrible guys. Uh, They get aced by God in a battle with the Philistines, the first battle that Israel has with the Philistines. Um, On the day that they die, uh, Phineas, the father of this guy, Ichabod. Ichabod is born that day to Phineas' wife, and she names him Ichabod. And Ichabod is a name that means the glory of God has departed. So here we are, fast forward, however many years. uh, Samuel's an old man. Saul is now the king. But (laughs) Ichabod and his father, Phineas, and his grandfather, Eli, make the story. Why? Because in the same way that God had abandoned Israel under the leadership of those dudes, God has abandoned Israel under the leadership of Saul. The best that he can do. No Samuel in this part of the story. Is everybody noticing that? Sam's gone. He's out. He'll come back for a little bit, but he's out. So the best he can do is the son, or the nephew, I'm sorry, of a guy named Ichabod. God's glory has departed. Meat on the bone right there, people. Don't skip the names. All right, verse 4. You know, it tells us there at the anniversary that the people didn't know that Jonathan got. And in verse 4, it shows us uh, uh, where Jonathan is headed as he uh, goes to uh, interact or to combat with the Philistines. Within the passes, as they're walking up through the mountains, by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. So crag, crag, where is he? Starts with V, sounds like valley. Valley, well played, everyone. Way to wake up on a Sunday. All right, so he's walking through this valley with these, anybody been out west where, you know, the Rockies or Utah, there's huge stone structures. Uh, Israel's full of them. 
It's, it's the river valley of Jordan, and then it's just a steep rise into these mountainous regions, dry mountainous regions. And, and that's where uh, Jonathan and Carl find themselves. Uh, they've given names to these crags that were on either side of them. The first one was called Bozes, which means shiny in uh, Hebrew. And, and most scholars think it was called shiny because it was impossible, like shiny slippery. You know, like climbing up the slide, you know, on a, <laughs> on a, on a slippery slide, you just weren't going anywhere. And, and so that's what this side was called, uh, Bozes, shiny. And on this side, there was another rocky crag called Senna, and it means thorny. So we can assume that both carry the same characteristics, shiny, thorny, shiny, thorny, thorny, and he's in the middle in this valley. Uh, if you're familiar with like uh, the stories uh, at the crucifixion where Jesus has a crown of thorns uh, shoved down over his head, Israel has these uh, thorn bushes that have spikes. I mean, they are, they are no joke, and they, they grow up in the crags of the rocks and the mountains there. Some of us were just hanging out there, and, and they, they are for real. And so here's Jonathan. Here's the picture that they're painting. They're at the foot of a mount that has a Philistine garrison up on the top. Uh, to get up there, they've got to climb these rocky crags that are both slippery and thorny. Anybody ever been there? Maybe not, you know, going to fight the Philistines, but in life, you felt like you've been in the valley between two uh, unclimbable, you know, hills, and up at the top, if you do manage to, you know, climb that distance, is that Philistine garrison waiting for you? I'll, I'll skip ahead to the end. There's about 20 guys up there. And there's only 600 guys in the whole Israeli army. There's only two swords. If you read the end of chapter 13, it tells us uh, that there's only two swords in the entire army of Israel. Saul has one of them. Jonathan's got the other. I'm guessing Carl is carrying it right now for him. So there's two guys, two hills, 20 dudes. Uh, This is not a good spot. It says in verse 5 that one crag rose in the north uh, in front of Michmash, a great Hebrew word to say, and the other side uh, was on, on the south, and it was in front of Geba. Oh, Jonathan is in a bad spot, but God's going to use him to be the hero in the story. I say God's going to use him because that's what happens in any heroic tale. Everybody understands that, right? We don't believe in the Avengers. They're a great three hours on a Saturday night, but they aren't real. There's no superheroes in this world. If something super happens, if something heroic occurs, it's because the God who is in power and in charge allows it to happen, enables it to happen, and brings it about according to his will. God is the hero in every hero story, especially in the one that we're reading today. Now, as God uh, acts on our behalf and brings victory and, and is the hero in our stories, he usually works through our faith in bringing about that victory. God usually works through faith. And you're like, don't you mean always? No, I don't. Here's why. The first reason that God usually works but doesn't always work through our faith is because sometimes he works despite the lack of our faith. Has anybody noticed that? (laughs) Has anybody noticed that? Yeah, you and I have bad days and God loves us still. Uh, It tells us when Jesus is talking about uh, uh, you know, uh, you've heard it said that you should uh, uh, love your neighbor, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's a nasty little piece of our Bible, isn't it? No one likes that part. 
But then he goes on, he says, you do this because it's what God does. God makes the sun to, to rise and the rains to fall on the wicked and the good, on the just and the unjust. His grace is available to all of us, regardless of whether we bring faith to the equation. Can everybody be grateful for that at least today? You are a blessed people. Just praying with a young guy. So I was walking through our courtyard. Uh, you know, he comes up to me. He's in our middle school group, and he's talking to me about school and middle school. Come on. Harrowing, right? But I get to say to him, hey, man, you are blessed. I know these parts are hard, but you are blessed beyond measure by a God who has given us so much. And so absolutely pray for him to help you through these hard things. But take some time to thank him for the grace that he's given despite That's why I say usually he works for our faith, because sometimes he works and we don't have any faith at all. We're actually very disobedient, and he still gives us grace. But there's another reason that I say he usually works for our faith, because if we make it this like equation, faith plus God equals victory, we're kind of like some of these churches that I call name it and claim it churches. Like if you just pray hard enough and believe hard enough, everything will happen according to your will. Um, This is heretical. Absolutely, we should pray and believe. Is anybody with me? That's in James. Pray believing. If you lack wisdom, pray. Pray believing. If you need something, ask. Believing that God can give it. But has anybody ever prayed for something and it didn't happen? Oh, no. God doesn't work. This whole God thing doesn't work. I prayed. I believed. There was faith. It didn't happen. It was like when I was a kid and I used to go to the candy machine, you know, at my high school, and I'd put my quarters in. And uh, I'd hit, you know, L1, which I think was M&M's, peanut M&M's. Anyway, I I hit that, and and the the little thing would scroll. Anybody remember what I'm talking about? It would kind of, and then the M&M's would still be there. Has anybody ever had that experience with, you're like, I put my quarters in, that's, those are my M&M's. I came to school one day, a guy got so mad at my high school, he broke the glass. Like, I don't know what he did to do it, but there was a frenzy in our lobby that day at my high school. Uh, But that's somehow, or sometimes, how people approach their relationship with God. I prayed, I believed, I put the quarters in. Where's my candy? Because that's how this is supposed to work. Mm. Uh, Thankfully, often, that's exactly how this works. When we read the story of Jonathan today, it's exactly how it works. God inspires Jonathan, John in faith responds, and victory is the result. It's awesome. But don't think for a second that your faith, your belief, your will will be done. If it's not according to God's plan, if it's not in his timing, no amount of faith will bring about what is outside of his will for your life. Are you with me? Some of you are like, I don't like that part, Mark. It's okay. God usually, though, works through faith in bringing us victory. We're gonna watch faith make the difference in Jonathan's story. We're going to see three things that come in the story of Jonathan and Carl uh, that we need to be looking for as we venture out in faith uh, in the victories that God wants us to have. The first thing that God grants us in providing us victory through faith is the courage that's needed for faith. The courage to take the first step. Every great journey starts with the first step, right? You got to go, you got to do this to get going anywhere. But this one, this one step can be the most terrifying moment of your life. Now, setting out on a path 
that you don't know how it's going to turn out. You don't know where things are going to lead. Well, most of us, uh, we're, uh, we're more calculated than that, and it's hard. Sometimes there's easy uh, let's go moments. Anybody ever uh, been offered to go do something, and you're like, yeah, let's go. Like Eleanor texted me this week, and she said, hey, Mark, on our calendars this certain Friday in the future, uh, I'm going to take it off, and, and we could go and have a, a day together maybe and spend the night uh, you know, as a couple, and that is an easy yes. Has anybody had an easy yes lately? Let's go, right? That's easy. But then there's the things that I'm like, I don't know. Encourage is required. Jonathan says to Carl in verse 6, come on. Let us go. Let's go. Let's go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. He's talking about the Philistines. Uncircumcised uh, is that they don't bear the sign of the sons of Abraham, the descendants of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are interlopers, invaders. They don't belong in God's promised land. Let's go and uh, let's face them. And one of my favorite lines in the whole story, it may be that the Lord will work for us. Let's stop there. Um, Encourage. uh, The the first step in taking the first step is having an optimism that things could work out. Like if you're a pessimist, if you're all Eeyore up in here, the the purple donkey from Winnie the Pooh, if nothing's ever going to work out, it's my birthday, right? If that's you, courage is going to be near impossible for you because you'll always assume the worst and you'll never go. But if you have this, this sense, this optimism that says, you know what, God could work through this, it opens doors that are otherwise closed. And you start heading in directions you might otherwise not have gone. He says this, not the Lord will work for us, that's that name it and claim it stuff, but optimism that leads to courage is maybe Perhaps God could work this out. Optimism. Rooted in a confidence. Look at the next line says. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Uh, Jonathan's optimism was rooted in his absolute confidence that whatever God wants done gets done. Doesn't matter how many are involved. Perhaps he's even thinking a few chapters back when his dad, Saul, was used by God to summon an army in defense of Jabesh Gilead, another town uh, in Israel that was under siege by the Ammonites. Uh, these Ammonites, Nahash was their leader, uh, had, had basically you know, surrounded Jabesh Gilead and they had brokered a deal with them that we're going to poke your eyes up. Read the whole thing. It's back there. But uh, uh, Saul, under the influence and power of the Holy Spirit, basically uh, sends a message throughout Israel in the form of pieces of his oxen. It's in there. Go back. And he says, this will happen to your cows if you don't join me on the battlefield. And everybody shows. There's 330,000 men who rally to the defense of Jabesh Gilead. It's the second largest army in our records in the history of Israel uh, in its Old Testament form. Uh, Certainly, They were overwhelming in their victory that day just by their sheer numbers. But here's Jonathan and Carl, sandwiched between two rocky crags that are slippery and thorny and facing an overwhelming force at the top of the hill. And Jonathan has the faith to say, yeah, man, my God is able. 
Doesn't matter how many of us there are. Him plus anybody is a majority. Let's go. Confidence. How's your confidence in your God as you wait for his answer in your bottom of the hill experience? Are you like Gideon? Go back a couple books in your Bible. This guy Gideon, uh, he's actually threshing wheat in a wine press. He's below the surface of the ground because he doesn't want uh, those who have taken over Israel uh, and, and have oppressed Israel to see him threshing his grain. It's there that the angel of the Lord comes to this guy Gideon and says, I need you as the general of the, the Lord's army. You're going to be the general of Israel's defense. And Gideon argues with him. I'm the least of my family from the least of the tribes of Israel. Sounds a lot like Saul when he was protesting becoming king. But he says, you don't want me. And the angel of the Lord turns to Gideon and he says, of course God wants you. Do you know why God wanted Gideon? Because if Gideon succeeded, there was nobody in their right mind who would think that it was anybody but God himself who brought the victory in that situation. Of course he chose the worst and the least. There's no way you could be like, well, Gideon was a pretty great tactician. He knew his stuff when it came to fighting. Just to make sure, here's what God does. He summons 10,000 of Israeli men, and they all come to this one brook where Gideon is amassing them, and Gideon's kind of getting used to this idea, I've got a lead, so here i got 10,000 guys, at least i got 10,000 guys. And then God says to him, hey, Gideon, have everybody take a drink. Have them go down to the creek, and everybody takes a drink. And anybody who puts their face in the water, send them home. All I want are the guys who put their hand in the water and take a drink like this so that they can see everything that's going on around them. That's who you want in the army. And so Gideon's probably thinking, cool, can't be that many guys, but 9,700 men put their face in the water. I'm not good with math, but that's like 97% of 10,000. Is everybody with me on this? So 97% of his fighting force is sent home, and God says, perfect. If they didn't think it was me because you were leading them, they'll totally think it was me because now there's only 301 of you. Let's go fight. And if you haven't read the story, it's amazing. They go into battle, and God, through his supernatural provision, uh, stirs up the enemy against itself. They end up doing the work of an army for the army of Israel. And it is a total victory. And the only thing that could be said in that situation is look what God did. The same thing with the fish and the loaves. Fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus has got a couple, you know, 50, probably 5,000 men, but with the families and all that stuff, maybe 12, 15, some think even 20,000 people in front of him, and he's teaching them, and he, he says, let's feed them, and his disciples, you know the story, the disciples said, no way, send them home. And then this one little kid brings up his, his Lunchables, he's got the two fish and the five loaves, and Jesus is like, what? Perfect! Let's do this! Ring the dinner bell! And he provides in a way that nobody could say that Subway came to the rescue or something like that. It was God and him alone through his son doing what cannot be done. Oh, faith starts with courage, optimism, confidence that leads us into places where we might not otherwise go. But then faith 
it becomes a, a partnership. Uh, God provides partners as we act in faith for the needed victory. Anybody grateful for the people in your lives who help you get through stuff? Anybody grateful for them? Are you sitting next to one of them maybe? Some of you might be. Uh, there's been seasons in my life, or certainly Eleanor, uh, but so many others have been God's agents in me feeling the courage or having the courage that I need to step out in faith and follow the path that he's given me. He, he loves working through uh, those uh, who are around us to keep us going in the direction he's calling us to. Look what it says in verse 7. It says his armor bearer, uh, uh, Carl the caddy, uh, says to Jonathan in response to his, hey, let's go, he says, do all that is in your heart. Jonathan, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you. How? Heart and soul. Not a, not a, a phrase that gets uttered offered often in our Bible. We talk about loving the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, that's one of the other places that it occurs. But here in the Old Testament, heart and soul is just like, you got all of me. Every little bit of me. Carl the caddy is in. I don't care about the rocks. I don't care about the 20 guys on the hill. Let's go. I'm your guy. Oh, I was running yesterday in this 5K. I, I took off at the beginning like everybody else takes off, almost sprinting. Because you've got to make a good show for the first 100 yards, right? Everybody's watching. All right, so I'm just plowing it. And I get to this corner over here by the student center as we turn to go up the hill. And I was like, oh, man. This was a bad idea. This is not going to work out really well. Uh, I, I, I tried to run most of that first lap, but it soon became very apparent, like I've already reported, this is something I should have trained more for. Um, I, I, I quickly set aside trying to beat Tom. I just wanted to finish. Anybody know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah. And so uh, I'm, I'm coming around on my second lap, and it's the first time I really noticed I have my earbuds in uh, because, you know, uh, I wear earbuds a lot. But uh, uh, I'm coming around, and, and there they are, six or seven uh, high school and middle school girls just standing at this one quarter going, yay, Pastor Mark! <laughs> at the time, I was not happy to see them. <laughs> Sorry, Gracie. Because there's times where you're just like, I'm tired, this hurts. Quit clapping. Leave me alone. But then I got past them and I thought, no, that's exactly what I need. It's exactly what God gives when we're in the middle of the long road that we face. He sends people on the sidelines to be our encouragers. On the last lap, I'm walking now slowly. <laughs> Many people passing me, right? Uh, I'm just up here in the back of our property in the woods, and, and Gary walks up to me. Gary's in my life group. Um, he kind of surprises me. I, have to, I didn't know he was there. I was like, oh, took the earbuds out. And uh, he's been talking to me. Has anybody ever had that conversation with someone with earbuds? You're already way in, and they're just like, what? Anyway, that was the conversation for a second. But I, I, I quickly uh, um, reheard what he was telling me about his personal walk in life and, and some of the things that he's experiencing, and I got to talk to him about you know, some, and, and we walk this piece of the road, the piece of the race together, right? And I didn't even notice that I was moving because we were just hanging. And that's what God does. He sends people to us for stretches of our road so that we have what we need from him through them. And we can keep going in the directions that he gives us. I could tell countless stories of the men and women 
the people that God has sent to keep me going. You could too. That's part of how God um, boosts our faith. He gives us the courage to start, but then he sends us the people to keep us going. And then finally, he provides us the plan that's necessary for our victory. Oftentimes, his plan would not match one that we would come up with. Has anybody noticed this? Anybody ever had that, you know, uh, dissonance with, with God's plan and your plan? Like, I thought we'd do it this way, God. And he's like, no, it's not how we're going to do it at all. I thought this would be the best plan. And he's like, no. In, in this case, in this um, military maneuver that Jonathan is about to, uh, you know, go through, it's all wrong. Like, if you, you know, served in our military, I know many of you have, thank you for your service, and some of you still are, thank you for your service. Uh, I never served. I've seen lots of movies, though. <laughs> and I know some basics about what you do and don't do if you're going to engage an enemy. Look what happens with Jonathan here. It says, Jonathan says to Carl, verse 8, behold, here's what we're going to do. We're going to cross over to these men, and we will show ourselves to them. Okay. Like, first rule of engaging the enemy, don't show yourself until you have to. Like, like uh, the, the element of surprise in this situation is immediately gone. They're just going to walk up to the front of the, you know, at the edge of the hill and be like, Philistines, it's me, Jonathan, this is Carl. That's what they're going to do. Verse 9, if they say to us, Wait until we come to you. Well, then we'll stand in our place, and, and we won't go up to them, and I guess we're going to fight them right here. But if they say to us, come on up, verse 10, come on up to us, then we will go up for the Lord, I love this, remember the confidence, for the Lord has given them into our hand. Now, we don't have, like, the details of God sharing this plan with Jonathan. It came in a text. I don't know. But, but this is obviously something that God had worked out with Jonathan because Jonathan confidently says at the end, here's what God's told me. If they call us to come up to them, it's curtains for those guys. We're going to go up this hill from this, you know, a position of vulnerability, and, and God's going to get us up there, and then when we get up there, you and me, Carl, are taking out all 20 of these dudes. Oh, it's going to be great. <laughs> That's the plan. <laughs> and Carl's like, cool, let's do this. It's the uh, uh, contingency. It's, it's, it's contingent on certain things happen, happening that, that Jonathan is going to experience this. You know, um, I was taught early on that we should not put the Lord our God to the test. Anybody heard that one before? A lot of times people come to God, this is kind of a sermon sidebar, but let's cover it. A lot of times people come to God and they like try to make deals. Hey God, if I do my quiet time all week, will you get me this promotion? What do you say? And we try to make deals. Like if I do this, you'll do this, right? Okay, don't do that. Everybody look at me and say, I won't do that. I won't do that. That's not how God works, okay? He's not, you know, uh, somebody at a garage sale that you're trying to get a better price from. All right, he's God, he's sovereign. When you come to him, you should say, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? That's my only hope. My life, your will be done, okay? But there are times in life, as it is here in Jonathan's story, 
where God speaks to us and says, okay, here's, here's some ways that I want you to know that I'm serious, that I'm, I'm going to act on your behalf. And I need you to, to wait for these things to happen as signs that things are supposed to go in this direction. If you've ever prayed for a big decision, maybe you know what I'm talking about. Uh, you've asked God to close doors, open windows, whatever, right? And to give you signs as to where you're supposed to go. Done under the guidance of the Spirit, under the direction of God. This is a great way for you to help discern the path that God has for you. Not your conditions, but if he provides them, like he did with Jonathan. If they call us up, we're going up there, and it is done, right? Um, as we celebrate Fred and Bernie uh, in, in the 30 years that God's given this church in its existence, um, uh, there was one other leader here before me, and I came about 18 years ago. There's all kinds of parts of that story that are God moving pieces and making things happen. Uh, but we got to the point where it was time to vote. The church was going to vote as to whether or not uh, they would have me as your pastor. And so uh, everybody assembled on that Sunday. It was after I'd preached, and, and I was sitting back in what is now my office, and I was hanging out with one of the elders there. I think it was his job to make sure I didn't run. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, no, but I'm sitting there, and uh, Eleanor's with me, and, and he says, okay, well, you know our bylaws. You've got to have 70% of the vote to be able to you know, be uh, asked to become a pastor here. And, and I turned and I said, no, listen, man, I've been praying with my boss back in Dallas. His name's Pete. And, and we, I shared that with him, that I only needed 70% of the vote. And Pete, in his wisdom, said, hey, man, you really want to go somewhere where like 30% of the people don't like you? I was like, wow, I never really thought of that. He says, you know, let's pray about it. Let's just commit to praying for like a week or two, and then let's come back and we'll talk about this after we're done praying, and we'll just figure out if there's maybe a higher percentage that God might have for us as kind of a, you know, a, a benchmark for, for you to be the pastor at this church, and we'll just ask him if that's what he wants to make that a sign for us. And so we both came back, confirmed in our spirit that God wanted for us to be able to say yes. It's one of the signs that we should be here in Brandon was for God to give us a 95% uh, approval from, from the vote, Right? And so I, I'm sitting there, and, and the vote's going on, and the elder says, well, you need 7%. And I said, actually, uh, just so you know, if it's under 95%, we're not coming. He's like, what are you talking about? So 93%, you're not coming? I was like, yeah, man. I mean, I just really feel like that's the line that God has given us. And so uh, the other elder, his name is Randy. He's gone to be with the Lord. He was an amazing guy. He comes back in, and it's his job to kind of share the news. And he, he bursts through the door, and he says, you're in. Because he's done the math to the point where he knows it's over 70%. He says, you're in. And I said, well, I need to know. Is it 95%? And he's like, 95%? Why? You know it's only 70 He's like, no, I need to know. For just, that's what we prayed for. Just let me know. And he's like, really? And I'm like, yeah. So he's like, <laughs> so he sits down. He's trying to do all the math. And uh, uh, seven of you said no. Uh, if you're still here, sorry, still here. What's up? <laughs> Didn't work out for you. Uh, but if you stayed, thank you, amazing. Um, seven people said no, and it turned out to be about 97.7, almost 98% of the people who said yes, yeah, God. But here I am as, a, as a, an example, not a normative all the time example, but an example of what Jonathan is talking about. Every once in a while, God's gonna lead you to wait for certain signs before you act. All right, back to the sermon, shall we? <laughs> Here's how things turn out. Verse 11. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines looked down on these two Israeli guys. One's just a caddy. There's only one sword between them. He looked down on this, uh, this, this duo, 
And they say this to him, look, Hebrews are coming out of their holes where they have hidden themselves. Just a nice taunt to get things going. It's like WWE, like Monday Night Raw, right? Uh, uh, Oh, these guys aren't chicken like the rest of the army of Israel, right? And so it says in the next verse, verse 12, that the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer, Carl, and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing or two. Come on up here and let's... Let's, let's tangle. And Jonathan says to his armor bearer, Ooh, boy, come up after me. For the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. I love that line. He doesn't say, mm, let's go, Carl. I'm going to go make some mess, right? He doesn't talk about himself, his own abilities. He doesn't talk about this single battle. He says, the Lord, this is God's heroic thing. The Lord has given them to who? Me? No. To his nation, to his people. It's all about him and what he wants for us, not me. Is that your attitude in your life? Should be. That as you go through your life, you go way beyond the myopia of me. And you, you, you refuse to just see your place on this planet as all about you. Because it's not. You are one of the many tools, the many agents of God's grace, the participants in his plan, and sure it affects your bottom line, but in the end, what God is doing is bringing about his will through you so that his greater good can be realized. (laughs) Jonathan says, let's go. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. And then Jonathan climbs up on his hands and feet and his armor bears behind him. Okay, we're going to stop there because it doesn't give us all the details. If this was like a scene in a movie, I'd be rewinding this back and forth. I'd be watching this over and over again because if you're trying to picture this, crags on both sides, thorns, slippery, right? 20 guys up on the hill. They start climbing like cliffhanger, like climbing a mountain, right? And, And up on the top, most scholars agree that the Philistines initially might be like, yeah, come on up here. But then maybe one of them throws the first rock. And then they, you know, one guy shoots an arrow. And everything that they try in ending these guys on, because it'll be fun. Watch these guys fall to their death. It'll be awesome. But everything that they try doesn't work. And the, 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 the fear in the Philistines is growing as more and more and, and further and further, uh, Jonathan and Carl climb the cliff. And they finally get up there, and now it's two guys against 20. Has everybody seen this movie? Two guys against 20. There's no way with one sword that anybody should last. But it simply says, love this, they fell before Jonathan. He knocked them all down. And he gave Carl, the armor bearer, uh, the courtesy of ending each one. Sorry for those of you who don't like violence, but uh, wow. Jonathan and Carl victorious. Says at the first strike, it means there's going to be a second one. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, at that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, um, these two guys killed about 20 men within, as it were, a half furrow's length and an acre of land. So in this, so I don't know how big your yard is, but about an acre, there's a half furrow's length. The furrow is that thing that you plant crops in. You know, you you you, you take a plow and it pulls up the that furrow is about 50 yards in the Israeli furrow you know almanac and so in about 25 yards square space on this acre of land 20 dudes lose to one 
and God is bringing victory to Israel in a way that can only be explained. God saved Israel. Keep reading. There was a panic in the camp of the Philistines and in the field and amongst all the people of the Philistines. The garrison there and even the raiders trembled. Why? Uh, Good reason why. Because on top of this great victory that uh, Jonathan is given by God over these 20 men, he makes the ground shake, which he's wont to do in battles. Does everybody remember a few chapters ago he made it thunder, right, in such a way and and, and storm in such a way that everybody in the Philistine camp knew our, our God is not going to win against their God. Well, he does it again, the earthquakes. And it became a, a huge panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah, it says, uh, of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. And then Saul says to his people who are with him, count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. And so Saul says, okay, my son just went off and started things going. And so he's like, this is, this is it, this is God's sign. We are about to be free from the Philistines. And he does the right thing, which was always his first move. Saul almost always does the right thing initially. Huh. It's not gonna last. He says, bring the ark, of the, God, uh, the ark of God here. If you've read the story, you know that the ark of God is kind of this um, box of emblems of the story of the Exodus. The ark is, is taken before Israel into battle. It is certainly a symbol of his presence in Israel. And so he says uh, to Ahijah, that high priest who was wearing the ephod, the descendant of Eli, he says, bring the ark and let's do this right. For the ark of God went at the time with the people of Israel into battle. Let me just tell you this real quick. Can we all be grateful that even when some of us mess up, God continues to give his grace to the rest of us despite that mess up? Yeah. Uh, God brings victory, victory despite the failures of some. Look at how Saul fails. Now, while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines, meaning all of the Philistines, increased more and more. It got crazier and crazier out there. And Saul pulls a Saul. He's like, well, I had great intentions, but this seems like the right time. Compare him and Jonathan, right? Saul's all about tactics, all about military advantage. He sees the panic in the Philistine camp, and he's like, God's going to have to wait. Jonathan comes between two craggy rocks and stands at the bottom of the hill. Worse tactics. And he says, if God's in it, we can't lose. It's going to be an ongoing thing between Saul and his son. But Saul says to the priest, Ahijah, Hey, Ahijah, move your hand, meaning stop what you're doing, dispense with the blessings. We're not going to offer the sacrifices to God before we go to battle. We're just going to go. Now, in previous chapters, just even the last chapter, when Saul has blown it, God's wrath is poured out on him and the rest of Israel. But in this story, God's like, Saul, I'll deal with you later, (laughs) but I'm going to bless the rest of your people despite your stupidity. And so he does. It tells us that uh, in verse 20 uh, that Saul and all of his people uh, who were with him rallied and they went into battle and God provided them a a victory in an amazing way. Read how it happens. It says in verse 20 that behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow. And there was a very great confusion. Does everybody pick up what the, the, the chronicler of history just put down? The Philistines started fighting each other. What's up with that? Well, the next verse tells us. It says, now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into their camp 
even though they also turned to be with the, even they at the time also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. So here's what had happened. It doesn't spell it out for you, but here's what happened. Of those 3,000, the 2,400 who left the army of Israel, some of them went in hidden holes and some of them crossed the Jordan, got out of town. But a bunch of them apparently switched teams. Like they went to fight with the Philistines against their own countrymen. These turncoats had been given Philistine armor and Philistine markings, uniforms, so that they looked exactly like the Philistines. But all of a sudden, Jonathan achieves the first victory. Saul and the rest of Israel, even though Saul blew it, heads out to fight, and these Israelis who are fighting for the Philistines look and saw that their countrymen were arising, and they're like, well, I guess I'm an Israeli again. And so wearing the Philistine armor and the Philistine uniform with the Philistine swords, there's only two in the camp of Israel. They've, they've been armed by the Philistines themselves and they just start cutting down the Philistines that are around them because they can't tell that they're enemies. Isn't that amazing? Don't, don't come to me, oh, don't come to me and tell me that God doesn't know what he's doing. You may not know what he's doing, but he does. You might look at a situation that says half of our army joined the other team. And God's like, perfect. I know how I'm going to get you guys out of this one. It's going to be awesome. Because all those guys wearing the other jersey are going to come back to your side at just the right time. There's going to be an unparalleled victory. (laughs) I love how he does stuff. I I don't know if you can appreciate it. I know we've got to go. But I don't know if you can appreciate it. When you think things are at their worst, God may, God may be going up in heaven, oh, this is going to be so great. It's going to be so great. If he'll just trust me, if she'll just follow me, if they'll just have the courage to look for those who can go with them on this path that I'll provide them, the victory will be theirs. It says in verse 22, likewise, all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, and so even they who had been hiding, they followed hard with Saul and Jonathan and and the Philistine fakers uh, into battle, and they chased these guys all the way to Beth Haven, which is on the very outskirts of Israeli territory. The Philistines are extricated from the land of Abraham. And my favorite line in the whole thing is what appears at the first part of verse 23. Will you read it with me? Is it on the screens? Here's what it says. So the Lord saved Israel that day. Who saved Israel? Not Jonathan. Not Saul. Not the turncoats in the Philistine army. They were a part of it. But all the glory goes to the God who saves. Listen to me. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what two rocky crags you find yourself between right now. I don't know what uphill battle. Uh, that's, that's maybe where it came from, the uphill battle. I don't know. I don't know what's in front of you. But there is a God who for eternity has been the hero of his story. And he stands uh, with you in whatever you face. And usually, not always, but usually he just asks you to have a little bit of faith, like the size of a mustard seed. And you can start tossing mountains around. Just trust him in what you're in. Wait for him to lead you to what's next. Follow him in faith, with courage. He'll provide your partners. He'll provide the path. Just go. 
uh, the, the king that replaces Saul. It's a guy named David. Uh, he's anointed. Saul is very jealous. He starts chasing him around Israel. We'll get to that in our story. But he's running for his life from Jonathan's dad, Saul. And in Psalm 18, he details his confidence in God. If I had time, I'd read you the first three verses. They're amazing. It's where we get a lot of the ideas that God is our fortress and our strength. David pens them there. But then as he's running from Saul, he hearkens back to the story that his friend Jonathan, we'll get to that too, but his friend Jonathan told him about this day that we just studied. Because in verse 18, or 23, now, Psalm, go to the verse. I can't remember what, yeah, Psalm 18, verse 29. Here we go. This is what David writes. He writes, for by you, God, I can run against a troop, just like Jonathan did. And by my God, I can leap over a wall, just like Jonathan did. Why? Not because Jonathan was great, not because I'm great, but because you are. And that's the God we serve. He's the way maker. You stand and sing with us.